Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. Thank you so much for joining us, and here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today it is my pleasure to welcome Cassie Christopher to our program. How are you, Cassie? I'm great. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to have you here. Are you enjoying your warm Seattle summer? I sure am. I am a fall denier. I know everyone will be listening to this in, in the transition to spring. So I hope future me is enjoying the daffodils. But right <laughs> now, whenever someone points out, you know, a, a colored leaf, which there are not many here at the beginning of September, to be fair, I tell them the tree must have a virus. Yes. Well, I have a friend who hates the fall because she's like, everything is dying. I just hate it. <laughs> and I do like the fall. I can appreciate it. I'm just not ready for it. Yeah. So have you been, have you lived in Seattle for a long time? I have. I grew up in Snohomish uh, or I was you know, born there, moved to Lake Stevens for my school years and then now live in Edmonds. So uh, I'm a native, a unicorn uh, as it were in the Seattle area. Yeah. Yeah. I love all those areas. My husband learned to fly out in Snohomish and yes. he's a pilot and he, he learned, you know, the little airfield out there. Yes, and Harvey airfield. And, uh, we, we used to live in Bothell, mm-hmm. Bothell Everett area. So yeah. 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 It's, it's a great spot. You're so close to the mountains. Um, there's a lot going for it. Yeah. I, I know whenever I go anywhere else, I think, why do people live here? The yeah. Pacific Northwest is the best. So I'm, yeah. I'm very biased. Like, a little partial yeah. to it myself. Um, so Cassie is a registered dietitian and you have some other letters after your name. Tell me what those mean. Yeah. So my alphabet soup includes my master's of science and nutrition. My credential is a registered dietitian nutritionist. So sometimes you'll see that as RD or RDN. I add to the confusion because I also interchange my use. It's allowed. So apparently I'm <laughs> taking up that freedom. And then uh, sometimes you also often see CD or LD, depending on the state, meaning certified dietitian or licensed dietitian. And, and I'm certified and licensed in, in many different states because I work with people all over the United States yeah. and sometimes the world. Now, do you work mostly from home or do you work out of a clinic or... Yep. So I, before it was cool, I was working from home, uh, you know, pre-pandemic even, and I really enjoy the ability to meet people virtually. I think uh, certainly there are benefits to seeing someone in person, but the ease and, you know, no one's having to worry about parking or traffic. uh, It really does make life easier and less stressful as a way to meet and talk about food, which is what registered dietitians do in your relationship with food, uh, which is a topic that can be stressful on its own. So you need to be adding more to it. Yeah, definitely. So what led you to your career as and a registered dietitian. What was your curiosity in that field? You know, it, it was health problems, which I think it can be so common for people in the medical field. I was struggling with digestive issues uh, and I saw a dietitian and she was really the only person 
who could help me feel better. Everyone else, you know, were giving me medications or suggesting surgeries or, you know, telling me I had irritable bowel syndrome and there was nothing that could be done. You know, it, it was the a dietitian who said, Oh, well, actually, you know, here are some foods you can eat that might help support your body and your healing and some things that can make you feel better. And one of the things I remember uh, my dietitian say, which it was like a, a dream moment for me, because I got to work with her later in my career. Um, but the woman I originally saw, she told me she called and left a message for an appointment knew I had finals because I was in, in college. And she said, uh, don't forget to eat some walnuts and blueberries to help your brain health for finals. And I was like, what? You know, this idea that food could benefit me beyond just, you know, meeting my hunger needs, like that there might be more to it. Right. Uh, and I don't know how I missed out on nutrition education somewhere along the line, but I was really only familiar with manipulating food to lose weight in a dieting context, which, you know, I grew up in a family of dieters or, uh, in, you know, just eating to satisfy hunger. I had no idea that food could be used to, you know, benefit us in other ways like brain health, mental health, energy, things like this. So that well, was really what got me whole, started. We're, we're not really educated that well about food and its usages in our body. It feels like it feels like that's somewhat unfamiliar to us outside of, like you said, satisfying our hunger. I think you're right. I think unfortunately, the problem with food is a lot of messages around nourishing yourself are also served with a heap of shame. And and thinking about food can feel shaming. Most of the time, people feel like they're not living up to, you know, nutritional ideals for what they even know about, you know, I think we all pretty much know we could use to eat more vegetables, right? And right. And so rather than thinking about the impact that food could have on us and how it could make us feel, I think most of us, especially those with a history of PTSD, are spending time uh, thinking about how we're not living up to uh, food ideals. And so, you know, if there's nutrition education out there, I don't think many of us are even in a place to receive it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up PTSD because obviously this is post-traumatic faith and we talk a lot about trauma and a lot about um, just things that have happened in our lives that have been impactful. What is the relationship between food and trauma? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I love this topic. I'm so excited you brought it up. And the reason I've been talking about this more, and I even sought you out to begin with, not only because I've had my own personal experience with trauma and faith and, and all of these things, but because I was seeing more and more that people were coming to me because they had heard me mention trauma, even in passing, and it was creating these light bulb moments for them to help them understand why they may have struggled. Uh, to implement consistently healthy eating routines. And they thought it was their fault. They were blaming themselves, but really, you know, like in everything, there's more to the story. So the connection between uh, nutrition and trauma is first of all, the research supports that people with a trauma history have a higher rates of obesity, higher rates of 
you know, nutrition related chronic diseases and higher rates of eating disorders than people in the general population. So already out the gate, we've got some stats that are making us go, okay, there must be some connection. There's something going on here. And what I've seen in my own practice. So I practice virtually, I help women in midlife and beyond who are feeling obsessed with food. They feel anxious and stressed about food. Maybe they identify as emotional eaters. Maybe they just think they're eating out of habit, which I will say hardly any of us are. It's usually actually the emotional eating and we can talk about that. Um, But I help these women get to a place where they no longer feel controlled by food. They no longer feel out of control around food and they're connected to a sense of self and uh, a motivation that allows them to make consistently healthy habits rather than going, you know, back and forth on the all or nothing dieting cycle. And the connection between trauma and nutrition and what is so liberating for people is understanding that when you have a history of trauma, your nervous system is likely to be, you know, upregulated hyperarousal being one of the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. And even people who aren't diagnosed with PTSD, uh, you know, whether they just haven't gone to be diagnosed, or, you know, had the opportunity to be diagnosed, or they, you know, do not fit the criteria oftentimes have, uh, you know, an active nervous system. And what I find is I work with women who on the outside are very high achievers, this Mm -hmm. active nervous system has kept them safe. And it has kept them, you know, performing well and achieving well. And yet they have struggled with their weight and or eating their entire lives and they blame themselves. They think if only they had more willpower, if only they had more self-control. Right. But what's really going on is the villain in the story is not, uh, you know, their their willpower, their self-control, their laziness is another word that gets thrown around, their, you know, moral failings. And it's not even actually trauma, uh, really. The villain in the story, and I'll I'll talk about how trauma is related to this, is all or nothing dieting. Mm -hmm. And this is really the the standard practice we have, whether it be keto or intermittent fasting or, you know, one of these other brand name diets, all or nothing dieting gives us this list of rules of things we can have and things we can't have. And then we, rather than creating genuine new habits and patterns and routines, we are we're, we're, we're sticking to, we're able to restrict and deprive from a sense of this overactive nervous system. Like it's an unhealthy coping mechanism rather than a healthy relationship with gray area, right? It's that all or nothing. And what happens with trauma is I talked about the nervous system. That's a big part of it. What's really been illuminating for me, and this ties into the faith as well, is I was listening to Dan Allender talk on the Mars Hill podcast recently about trauma and faith. Mm-hmm. And it was something he said was so enlightening to me. And, and if you don't know him, he's a, a trauma therapist. In particular, right. he's done a lot around sexual abuse. And he was saying that people who have been traumatized and have not you know, processed and heal and are in the process of healing from it. Um, are in favor of dogma. They are in favor of these black and white rules and being told, you know, what is good and what is bad. And it's so amazing to me, you know, right? Where they're talking about 
faith and how people with trauma might end up, say, you know, with a narcissistic leader or in a cult or some of these other things. Um, but I could see the connection with this all or nothing dieting right. that causes us to disconnect from our own uh, bodies. Like we don't know when we're hungry. We don't know when we're full. It causes us to disconnect from our emotions because the answer isn't to investigate what is it that you need? How is this food serving you? But the answer with all or nothing dieting is just stop eating chocolate, stop eating sugar, cut it all out, you know, don't eat it. And you're, you're going to stop having cravings, all of these things, but that's not sustainable because it, it doesn't come from a healthy place. It comes from a place where, you know, restriction and an activated nervous system are driving rather than your own love for yourself and, and care of yourself and calm, you know, sense of self uh, driving. So do you think that that kind of rigidity, um, that kind of um, all or nothing thinking is a way of controlling one's environment in response to having some chaos and trauma in the past? 100%. So I talk about, I, I've borrowed this concept of the window of tolerance from Dan Siegel, a trauma therapist. Right. And I talk about the zone of trust. So it's that place and it's his window of tolerance. I'm just calling it something different because we're talking about food specifically, but it's that place where you trust yourself to make healthy choices, where you trust yourself to have something crazy happen and you're able to go home and, you know, cook the food that you need. You don't need to stop by Dairy Queen and reward yourself with an Oreo blizzard. Um, and so obviously that's a real life example <laughs> from <laughs> my clients and Hey, I've probably been known to do something like that in the past too. Um, but this, this zone of trust, this place where you can trust yourself to make the choice with food. And it comes from you wanting to care for yourself, not from this idea of restriction and controlling. And when you're outside your zone of trust, that's when you get the binge eating, the emotional eating, the the one that people often don't associate uh, is the zoning out where you're dissociating from your body and your feelings and you're using food. This can happen in binging as a way to just completely shut down, shut off your feelings, shut out the world. You're you know focused on one thing. Uh, but so yes, these food behaviors are happening there outside your zone of trust, but also restriction. Mm-hmm. And that restricting to control to your point is also happening outside the zone of trust. So in our society, we look at somebody buckling down, getting serious, cutting all these things out as, wow, go you when actually, and sometimes that comes from a healthy place. Mm-hmm. I have a client who, you know, we did some food sensitivity testing because she had a lot of inflammatory issues and she's doing an elimination diet right now with, with a handful of foods that, you know, I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she's feeling amazing. Right. So she sees the impact and it's worth it. Um, she's, she feels better than she has in a long time. Uh, and yet, you know, there's a, so there's a difference between doing that and getting, you know, support and, and seeing kind of how you're thinking about food. It's not coming from this restricting control place, but rather from a, uh, you know, tr- place of treatment and, and healthy boundaries for yourself, as opposed to, okay, 
I have a problem with sugar. I'm never going to eat anything with sugar in it again. Uh, and, you know, and again, the thing that's so interesting to me is that works for a time for people um, often, you know, and but but I, what I find is over time and I work with women primarily in their 50s and 60s, you know, some older, some younger. But what happens is after decades of doing that, they get to a place where their self-protective instincts kick in and they can't do it anymore because they're, mm-hmm. they're the, the, they feel like the rebellious preschooler inside is going, I don't want to do this. And they think there's something wrong with them. But again, no, that's that intuitive part of you that knows that this is not healthy and it's this not sustainable. That's, right. that's your power speaking. Right. And like you're saying, if it comes from an un- unhealthy motivation or and healthy impetus, then um, its sustainability is is limited. And if in those who are sustainable, oftentimes are the ones who are have eating disorders. And again, so that's not really sustainable. Right. Um, but they can maybe go longer because there's so, some mental health uh, in play as well. So talk to me a little bit about emotional eating. Um, you know, we think about emotional eating as just eating your feelings. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's what people say. But what, um, there's a deeper root to it. Um, talk to me a little bit about about emotional eating. Yeah, Ooh, my favorite topic. So I, emotional eating is in some ways eating your feelings. Um, but it's actually, I would say broader than that, because if that's the definition, people often don't realize they are emotionally eating unless they're like, I'm so stressed. I'm going to go get my blizzard. <laughs> that keeps coming right. up. I think I'm going right. to need to go get a blizzard at some point. <laughs> I might now be we're, triggering Now we're triggering everybody who wants ice cream. <laughs> I know. I know. I ta- This happened to me earlier today. I was on a meeting and somebody mentioned chicken tenders. And I was like, dang it. Now I really want chicken tenders. So sorry, everybody. Yeah. You can't talk to me without <laughs> wanting food. It's it's a problem. Um, so <laughs> I'm laughing because it's like that's what people come to me for, and I'm yeah. In any case, yeah. Uh, uh, so the question was eating your feelings. So you're aware if you're stress eating, if something stressful happened and you're eating, that also could be a reward. I'm rewarding myself. That would, that's an example of, you know, comfort eating, but what food also does is it numbs. And so it allows you not to feel, uh, or you, so you may not be even aware of the emotions because food gets, we get so good at this, that we have stimulus and, you know, reaction rather than the pause to go, what's really going on here. And so you'll have a craving, I want some X, Y, Z, and you'll go and get it. And you won't be aware that you're eating that thing because you're tired. You know, research shows for every hour of sleep deprivation, people eat an additional 384 calories or something like that. So being tired can be a great reason to emotionally eat. And as one, many of us do, um, Uh, but in addition, you know, it could be that you are needing comfort or you're needing a break or you're needing some pleasure. You're bored, you know, boredom, if you experience it, is very uncomfortable. If you actually just sit there and feel bored. And so we aren't even aware oftentimes of what's driving us to eat. And my work with people is to that's what I do is I do that archaeological dig and help them uncover what is it that caused you to eat. And some people will say, oh, it's just habit. It's never habit. It is absolutely never habit because really, 
if you were eating out of habit, you would be, say it's a bowl of popcorn. Sorry, now everyone's popcorn. You're watching Netflix at the end of the day. Uh, if it was a habit, you would get conscious, right? Like it's mindless eating and habit habitually is mindless eating. As you became conscious that you were eating popcorn and that wasn't in line with your goals, which happens at some point while you're eating a bowl of popcorn, right? Um, you would go, oh, wait a minute. That's right. I don't want to be doing this. Plop, plop, plop. Spit yeah. the popcorn out and take it to the kitchen and throw it away or give it to whoever in your family, right? And you would be like, nah, oops, my bad. It wouldn't be a big deal. That's a habit, right? right? Like if somebody, if you weren't supposed to brush your teeth, you weren't supposed to brush your hair for whatever reason, you would start to do it because it was an automatic habit. And when you realized you were doing it, you would stop and it would be like, oh, oops, not supposed to do that. No big deal. But with food, there's always an emotional component and there's a biological reaction mm -hmm. because of what's called forbidden food syndrome. And this is another reason why all or nothing dieting is so dangerous is because when you put foods on the no list, then it makes you want them even more by increasing the amount of dopamine in your brain. And, and I mean, everybody who's a research person, Google it, you know, Google scholar here, forbidden food syndrome. I'm not making this up. Um, it increases the dopamine in your brain. And this isn't dopamine that's acting in a pleasure context, although dopamine does. This is dopamine that's acting in a motivation and learning context in the brain. Mm. And so when you say no to a food, your brain makes you think about that food more. You obsess about it more. You want it more. And what's really interesting is in my work, and there's not research to support this yet, because I think not a lot of people get the results that I do for my clients, quite frankly, and quite, mm -hmm. you know, confidently. Um, what I see is people can get to a place where they're able to put boundaries around food. It's not a no, it's not a I can't have this. It's not attached to morality or whether they are a good or a bad person. Right. It's just, you know, the example of the woman with the food sensitivities. It's She's got her reasons for doing that, that, uh, that are related to caring for herself and what she wants for her life. And she's connected to those without the shame and you know, there's no shame involved. And so she can make those choices. And so part of healing as well. And, and, you know, the biggest thing that happens is this all or nothing dieting and trauma as well. They both lead you to stop trusting yourself. Mm. It leads you to stop trusting yourself in many contexts, but around food specifically. And so to get to that place where you can set boundaries around food without activating that forbidden food syndrome, that's when we need to cultivate the courage to trust again, or maybe for the first time. And, you know, you, um, you had asked me in one of your questions, <laughs> yeah. um, what is the courage to trust? And, and yes. so what I'd love to share is, uh, to me, the courage to trust is exemplified by four statements. The first is the courage to trust that food isn't the problem and neither are you. Mm. And this is important because when you are blaming yourself and kicking yourself and beating yourself up for your body and how your body functions, for your cravings, for your appetite, for your hunger, your fullness, for your missteps, you know, you believe you are the problem. Right. And if you're the problem, there's no solution. Like you're, you are hopeless. 
If you're the problem, there's no solution. So the courage to trust involves establishing that belief that you're not the problem and food isn't the problem either, because it's not about cutting out all the sugar. It's about developing a relationship with sugar that allows you to derive pleasure from it when you enjoy it without needing it all the time to be your emotional coping. Right. Right. That makes sense. The, the other statements for the courage to trust are you can hear and respond to the cues that your body is giving you instead of eating to numb or restricting for control. I mean, we've already talked about that, both of those, the numbing and controlling mm-hmm. the courage to trust that you can mindfully indulge and consistently make nourishing choices. It doesn't have to be this all or nothing. And the courage to trust that you're worthy of care and love just as you are even while pursuing weight loss, if that's a lot of people come to me, they want to lose weight and they believe that accepting themselves and loving themselves is, um, is, you know, counterintuitive or works against weight loss, that the only way that they're going to get to this body that they desire is to hate themselves. Mm-hmm. And for anyone out there who's going, oh, yeah, I, I mean, my snarky question is, how's that working for you? Right. Right. Not very well. It doesn't work. You know, especially as women, we attach so much value to how we look in comparison to everybody else and in comparison to the media and, and our behaviors. And so we, we make a good or a bad judgment call on ourselves uh, based on how we, how we perceive we fit into society. Right. I love that. And a lot of the work that I do one-on-one with women is helping them understand where these societal norms come from. And I will boldly say they are classist and racist. They are patriarchal, oppressive to women. These societal norms do nothing but hurt. Mm -hmm. And so part of this work in cultivating the courage to trust, yes, you know, helps with the eating, but it also is repairing your relationship with your body and, and what you believe about your body. And in that work is so it's scary for people. You know, I asked a client, what are you going to do if you step on the scale and you gain weight? And she couldn't even talk about it because she was getting so anxious, you know, and, and she had the self-awareness to say, wow, like my legs are shaking. I'm fidgeting with something. My heart, I'm kind of feeling mad at you for even asking that question, you know? Um, and, and so recognizing these are hard conversations to have. And yet what is so interesting, and and there are people out there who believe the pursuit of, of weight loss is harmful in, in any context. I am actually not one of those people. I believe you know, you, it's different for each person. So, um, for some people it may be, and, and I will support someone where they're at for other people. Um, they, they may want to work towards weight loss. And most people who come to me that they're looking to lose weight and we, you know, heal their relationship with food and their relationship to their idea of what weight is in the process. And then, you know, they can, try to lose weight or they can not, or they can, you know, make peace with themselves where they are. Like the outcomes are different, but the point here being that, you know, an example, I had a client um, who was very afraid of 
talking about weight. And I had her do some journaling around why it was so important to her to lose weight. And it had to do with being seen by other people and, you know, seeing friends she hadn't seen in a long time and having them think that she was lazy or, you know, didn't take care of herself or let her, let herself go. Right. Like these are some of the terms that, that we say about ourselves and other people. And, you know, it was really interesting for me to reflect back to her and hold her feet to the fire a little bit and say, like, one of the things we've been working on is you've realized a lot of the choices you make in life are based on you caring for other people are based on people pleasing and, you know, doing for others rather than for yourself. And and part of the work we're doing with food and her emotions is giving her the space to deal with those things rather Mm -hmm. than do things for others. And it was so interesting to me to go, your desires to lose weight have a hundred percent to do with other people and what they think of you. Mm. And that's, and that's shame. That's based from shame. Right. And if you're, you're basing your desire to do something, your motivation to do something from shame, it's never, ever going to be successful at least not in a healthy way. Right. Give me a good definition of shame. Shame. Yeah. I love Brene Brown's definition, um, which is the, uh, the belief that you are not worthy of love and connection with other people because of who you are, what you've done, what you haven't done. Mm -hmm. So it's isolating. Right. And we know infectious and so many people with a trauma history as this woman had, uh, are carrying around a lot of shame. Right. And I would say all or nothing dieting, which I've described earlier, even on it, I think people with a trauma history are drawn to it for sure. I mean, it's kind of that dogma, you know, we talked about, but I believe all or nothing dieting itself can be traumatizing. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. And create so much shame because you're, you believe you're not good enough. You're not lovable. And I'm here to tell you that's absolutely not true. And there is hope for people who are struggling with making these eating patterns. Um, there, there is hope. I, you know, I help people to heal their relationship with food in their body all the time, every day. And it, it can be done for even the yeah. people who feel the most damaged. So what, what relationship do you think um, faith has in, in relationship to food and in relationship to um, ourselves and knowing who we are and knowing our worth? What, how does faith operate in the midst of all of that? Yeah, I'll start with how it doesn't operate, (laughs) because that's often (laughs) or how it's not helpful to operate. And that is when we attach morality, like this is good, or this is bad to food, or to even our actions around food. Uh, And you are not good or bad for eating anything. So Mm -hmm. I will tell you that my approach, both I mean, in my definition of sin and, you know, these faith-filled topics, but also in my, my approach to people with eating is that everyone is doing the best that they can. Mm. And if your best is after work, stopping and buying a hamburger and fries because you're too tired to make something, you know, or you don't have the motivation or whatever it is, 
Like we need to, we need to recognize that, that it's not a character default or a morality issue. It's you doing the best you can. And if you look at it with that frame of mind, then we can see what kind of support do you need? What kind of healing do you need? So that the best you can looks like something healthier, right? Mm -hmm. I love Um, the way you put, I love the way you put that because um, like you said, we, we do make a moral judgment and we do make, you know, yeah, just a moral judgment on food and on ourselves. And, um, you know, I have a history of, you know, being very hard on myself for weight and, and all of those things and not really being cognizant until in my mid forties that how much trauma, you know, played a part in how my relationship with food and, and how that all works together. And so I think, you know, your work with women in their fifties and sixties, when we're dealing with, you know, menopause and life change and um, dealing with, you know, our homes are changing, our home environments are changing. I think all of that is so necessary to talk about, which leads to my next question, which is, you know, in a lot of what you're talking about, you sound like a therapist. Um, Do you think um, a relationship with a counselor or a therapist is a good idea in tandem with working with a dietitian, Or do you think that you can kind of fulfill those roles together as you work with a client? Yeah. So um, I will say the people I work with, so for me specifically, and then I can kind of zoom out for other dietitians uh, generally, People I work with have all generally done extensive therapy. Mm. Um, they aren't usually in therapy concurrently with working with me, but they, they've, what often happens is they've done the emotional work, um, to get to a place where they are functioning. You know, they're not in a depressive episode. They're, they're functioning, um, well, and, and they've done a lot of the emotional work. And what they really need help with is to take the freedom that they have received from that emotional side of things and translate it to food. And Mm. the other thing that I do with people, the first pillar of my courage to trust method is calming the nervous system, because that's really important to be able to make healthy choices. I mean, after this conversation, everyone out there probably can connect those dots, right? Right. Um, But that's also kind of another I'm not trying to calm people's nervous systems to heal their trauma, but it is an added, you know, benefit because the nervous system activation is such a big part of things. So that's how people tend to work with me. Um, Someone's relationship with food in their body is within my scope of practice as a master's trained registered dietitian and within, you know, Washington state law. And and like I said, I'm licensed in other places. So I'm always operating within those uh, state laws. Uh, a typical diet, a diet, and some other dietitian may not have the same specialty that I do. They right. they may not be able to do the work that I do. In fact, there are very few people who do the work that I do. Um, and so, you know, you may benefit from working with a therapist to get that emotional side of things, that emotional relationship with food and body. Uh, and there are therapists out there who specialize in that. Um, oftentimes eating disorder therapists are people who have that experience. If you're looking for someone, that can be a good place to start. Yeah, good, good. Well, 
What do you think is um, the first step for people to addressing their relationship with food? How does somebody get started on this journey um, and what resources and support are the most helpful, you think? Yeah, so I would love to offer your audience a resource um, that is just coming out here (laughs) in early September. So it'll be old hat by the time it it gets around. But um, it's an audio guide that someone can listen to when they are in a place of having a strong food craving and they want the food, but they don't want it. Right. Like they, they maybe they've noticed they're habitually going to get something and, you know, they can't just say, no, I'm not going to do it. There's that emotional component involved. So they could listen to this 10 minute audio guide. And what the audio guide does is it, it helps people connect to what they're feeling and what they need so that they do not need to eat. And your audience is welcome to grab that at cassiechristopher.net forward slash free or food dash obsession. Let me say it one more time. cassiechristopher.net forward slash food dash obsession. And if you go to my website, cassiechristopher.net, it'll be all over the place. This is a tool I've used with my clients for years and years, and I'm just now making it available to people who aren't my clients so that they can get the amazing power of this tool as well. That's great. Is it like a um, informational resource or is it more meditative or? Yeah, it's an, it's an exercise like a a meditation or, you know, an, an audio exercise. So you, you're in the moment, you're having the food cravings, you put in your headphones or, you know, you, you play it and you listen to it and I walk you through and you do a body scan and you notice where in your body you're wanting, you're, you're feeling that craving, you're notice what, what you're feeling in your body. Um, I help you visualize it and soften it. And then we use self-compassionate principles so that you speak kind words to yourself Mm. about your craving. It's, it works through all four of my pillars in one, you get calming the nervous system, you get self-compassion, you get listening to yourself and you get, I mean, the medical nutritional therapy side of things, because you're getting this tool to stop you from eating the unhealthy food. So it's, it's, you will walk away feeling good. My clients love this tool. They use it all the time. I use it whenever I have a food craving. It is a legitimately wonderful tool that I'm so excited. It just occurred to me, I was talking to a girlfriend. I was like, Hey, wait a minute. I should share this with people. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That uh, That's really valuable. And I appreciate that. Well, your website is CassieChristopher.net. And we can link into that to find to find the other tools. Cassie, this has been a very informative and enjoyable conversation. And I just really appreciate um, you coming and sharing your perspective and your expertise with us today. So thank you. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.Author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.Author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.